All right, turn, uh, get your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. The message will be a little shorter tonight. You'll see why in a minute. Matthew 13. Um, this is a, Matthew 13 is a, a chapter that has, a, I think, six different parables of Jesus in it. It's, it's, it's full of them. And that is also just a reminder that um, we don't know that necessarily these gospel writers were presenting these parables in, in the real-time order that Jesus delivered them. Sometimes they compiled them for their own theological reason uh, for their, in their, or whatever reason they had for putting this gospel together. But uh, here we are in Matthew 13, and we've, we've already, in this chapter, we've already looked at... Um, the purpose of the parables, we have looked at the parable of the sower and its explanation. We'll eventually hit all of these parables um, before it's all said and done. But tonight, uh, we're going to look at two parables, two of them uh, found here. And before you get alarmed about looking at two, um, they, uh, the, the, the longest parable we're going to look at tonight is a mere two verses. And the other one is one. <laughs> uh, it's just one verse. And so they are very simple and straightforward and to the point. And the point I think we're, they both bring out is the worth of the kingdom, the worth of the kingdom, the worth of the value of the kingdom. So um, it's, the, it's the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. That's verses 44 to 46. That's what we're going to study tonight. The parables that we've studied to this point, though, uh, I've said this almost every week, the ones that we've chosen to begin this whole series with are parables that have to do with, uh, that describe Jesus describing through the parable how a person enters into the kingdom. Um, and, you know, and, and, and strictly, these two parables we're going to study tonight aren't any different, but they do address that same issue from a slightly different angle. And what I mean by that is this. The other parables that we've studied to this point, when they focus on how a person enters into the kingdom, those parables that we've already studied, they have focused on the person who's entering the kingdom. The person. So, uh, meaning it focuses on the humility of the person who enters the kingdom or the lack thereof, who man, person who doesn't, or the, or the self-righteousness of the person who does, doesn't enter the kingdom, or the repentance and the faith. They're looking at the person who enters the kingdom. Um, so you have that with the parable of the sower, for example. We, it had to do with the different soils that would receive the seed or not receive the seed, representing people who do or don't receive the word of the gospel. Then they, you know, we talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so we obviously we focused on the self-righteousness of the Pharisee and the humility and repentance of the tax collector. And Jesus said that man went down to his house justified and part of the kingdom. We looked at the parable of the prodigal son. And you had the, the, the wayward prodigal, but he came home humble and repentant. And his self-righteous older brother, Jesus, was saying one, one entered the kingdom, one didn't. You know, and even two weeks ago, we talked about the wedding, the, the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding feast. And it was talking about uh, the, the man wasn't clothed in the proper clothing. We talked about that represented the righteousness of Christ that's given to us to enter into the kingdom. So all of these we've considered so far, they have this theme running through them of what makes a person fit 
to enter the kingdom. Humility, repentance, faith, uh, crying out and seeing your need for atonement. That was even in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector when his mere prayer was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That word that he used for have mercy on me, have mercy, that's the same word for atonement. Atone for my sins. I need I need my sins to be covered. And and so with a wedding feast. Like, but this this these parables today, they're still going to be a about a person who enters into the kingdom, but the, the focus of these parables is going to shift away from necessarily the I mean not not away. It is going to talk about the person who's entering the kingdom, but it's also going to give greater focus to uh, the kingdom itself and the value and the worth of the kingdom, a person who desires that kingdom because he sees the beauty of it. So we're still, we're still talking about what brings a person to the kingdom of Christ and finding salvation in him. Yes, it's through a repentant, humble, believing heart, but it's also seeing the beauty of Christ, seeing the worth of his kingdom and desiring to follow him. Um, and seeing him as more worth anything else in your life. So if you found Matthew 13, we're going to read these parables and then think through what Jesus is telling us here, which is pretty obvious and uh, won't require much elaboration. But So Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us grace to study uh, these words, these words that are very brief, but Lord, we, they are just as much your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word as any other word that we might study in this, in this book. And so would you please give us eyes to see the simple truth that Jesus has to lay before us here? Would you please give us not just eyes to see it, just minds to understand very clearly what he's saying, hearts to embrace it most of all hearts to embrace it and wills to obey. We ask that you might give that to us. Give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so obviously these are the shortest parables that Jesus ever told. And um, I remember telling you in week one when just setting up these, um, these parables that parables are comparison stories. Um, they are stories that are teaching you about one thing by comparing it to another thing. Uh, usually it's Jesus t- com- teaching you about heavenly realities by, by comparing it to some earthly reality that you're very familiar with. Um, and these parables certainly show that to be the case. They both begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he issues two simple but really profound comparisons to what the kingdom of heaven is like. So there are three basic components to each of these uh, short parables. Um, and I think these, these, these three components are going to guide our thinking through them. So if you're taking notes, here's, I want to say a quick word first about the reality, of, the reality of the kingdom. The reality of the kingdom. Like I just said, both 
both begin with the kingdom of heaven is like, assuming that we all know what the kingdom of heaven is. Um, certainly Matthew's Jewish, primarily Jewish audience would have known what the kingdom of heaven is, but we need to make sure we're clear on it. So if it's going to say the kingdom of heaven is like something, let's just know what the kingdom is, okay? And then second, uh, I want us to note the worth of the kingdom. The worth of the kingdom, which is an interesting idea. Um, you know, the, no, no it's, uh, it, this is the main point of the, of the text. The worth of the kingdom is just very set up in the, in the, in the comparisons that he makes. So the treasure, the, 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 the pearl. Third is the cost of the kingdom. And this is one that we need to think carefully about. Um, because if you, if you really think how Jesus teaches it here, um, it's just it's, it's, a good, it's a good point. So let's think about each of these quickly. And uh, let's let Jesus' parables do most of the talking. So let's think first about the reality of the kingdom. So Jesus, again, begins each parable saying the kingdom of heaven is like. And I've told you a few times already, I know I have, that Matthew's, Matthew the gospel writer, Matthew's preferred phrase is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. But other New Testament writers, gospel writers, other Paul, uh, they prefer more often prefer kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ. Um, And that I've told you already that those are just different phrases for the same reality. But what is that reality? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of Christ? What is the kingdom of God? Uh, What is Jesus talking about here when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? So we, and I want to say a word about this, but we could be here for a very long time if we tried to cover everything that scripture says on that but this is let me just try to summarize some things graham graham goldsworthy let me just go ahead and commend that name to you graham goldsworthy and graham is spelled g-r-a-e-m-e graham goldsworthy he's an old man now but he's an australian uh theologian biblical theologian he has written a lot on uh the gospel and the kingdom that's the name of one of his books He's very easy to read, and it's, it's just you can learn a lot from him. Graham Goldsworthy uh, summarizes the kingdom in the Bible, summarizes the kingdom this way. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's a good summary of how you can trace the theme of the kingdom throughout Scripture. And you can trace the development of the kingdom all the way through the Bible in that way, leading to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So just hitting, hitting high spots and bullet points. The kingdom began, or at least the, the, the picture of the kingdom, began in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Um, they were God's people in God's place, Eden, under God's rule, Right? How were they under God's rule? How were they uniquely so? Well, they were, they were told to exercise dominion as part of being created in the image of God. They were told to exercise dominion. But that's true for all people who are created in the image of God. How were Adam and Eve uniquely under the, under the rule of God in some way beyond just what every image bearer is? Well, they were, uh, they, they, they were um, in a special arrangement or covenant arrangement with God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, because they were given the added command, Adam was, to work and keep the garden. Work it and keep it. Which, by the way, if you keep reading in the Old Testament, work and keep are two uh, 
two words that are often used to describe what priests did in the temple, in the tabernacle. But you know that story. Um, you had God's people in God's place under God's rule, but you know that story that they fell into sin uh, and severed that covenant relationship with God. That covenant relationship that they were under was a covenant of works. And so they sinned, and now that is that, that covenant, that arrangement, of, of trying to be right with God or keeping yourself right with God was now broken, which is why to this day, why to this day, uh, no amount of good works or goodwill or obedience or record-keeping on your part has any chance of earning any favor from God. Um, because that covenant opportunity is over because Adam broke the law. Right? That, 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 is, that, that covenant opportunity is over. But even with that covenant relationship broken, God, even to Adam and Eve, promised that a covenant of grace would come, that a Savior would come. And, the, and He promised that in Genesis 3.15. And the rest of the Old Testament is tracing the developments leading to the fulfillment of that promise. So... Fast forward from Adam and Eve just a little bit to this man Abraham and, and his family. And God's favor came to rest on one man and his family in the person of Abraham. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, among other things, he said, I will make of you a great nation, i.e. kingdom, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the kingdom now, when you're, you come to Abraham, God's kingdom began to take more shape. God's people is now Abraham and his family, which is the nation of Israel. In God's place, eventually it will be the promised land, right? Under God's rule, which will eventually be the law of Moses, right? And uh, that would come just a few generations. And, and, and God made it clear to Abraham even, even at that early point, that, that, God, uh, that the nation that God would form through his offspring would be a picture of the kingdom of God. Because he say, if you just jot down references, God told Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, he, told, he, he repeated the promise to Abraham and he said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Right? And just a few verses later, he, he says, I will bless Sarah. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So, as, as the history of Israel moved, moved on, kings did come from her. Kings did come from him. Started with Saul, hit its climactic point with David. Right? And, 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 and when you have the king in place, let's just center on David since he's the climax. You know he's the climactic king because God even makes another covenant with David. Now the kingdom, the kingdom of God or that picture of it is taking even more shape because uh, now God's place in this point of the Old Testament story, God's place is still the, is still the promised land, right? And God's rule was still the law of Moses, but now God's people, yes, was still the people of Israel, but through their king, the represent, their representative. 
You watch the, the history of the later Old Testament, and God dealt with all the people based on the obedience or disobedience of their king. If the king goes, if the king is righteous like King Josiah or King Hezekiah, the people are blessed. If the, if the king is ungodly like Ahab or you name, you name uh, some of the other kings, the people suffer because God is dealing with all the people based on their king whom he's treating as their representative, right? And so now we've got that element folded into this growing picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Now in, you have this principle at play. In God's kingdom, God's going to deal with his people based on the obedience or disobedience of their king. And if you know the rest of the story, that turned out to be a train wreck in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. Because of disobedience, they lost the promised land, they lost the kingship, and that's just showing that that was not the permanent kingdom. That was, not, that was just a picture of, of the kingdom coming. And even in the covenant that God made with David, God, God was promising David that another, a greater king would come after him. And when you come, when you march on through to the prophets, you come to, for example, Daniel, the prophet. And in Daniel 7, 14, Daniel 14 says, There came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Israel, even Adam and Eve and Israel, they were just small pictures of the true kingdom coming. Uh, it, the, the, the true kingdom coming would be from, made up of people from every nation and tribe and tongue and represented and ruled by a king who is both God, his, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and man. He's one like a son of man. And so when the, you come to the Gospels, and Jesus, for example, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Mark 1, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is that greater king who came. He's both God and man. And, he's, and, and God now, even in this, in the, that the kingdom is here and the new covenant is here, that principle is still in play that God still deals with his people on the basis of their king. Right? And Jesus, our king, obeyed perfectly. And he gave his life for our sins. When God looks at me, he doesn't deal with me. If I'm trusting in Christ, when God looks at me, he doesn't deal with me based on me. He deals with me based on my righteous king. Right? Which is, which is why he says all that, all that is required of us to be a part of his kingdom is to repent and believe. In that kingdom, that kingdom over which Christ is king, the, for those who repent and believe, we have Jesus as our representative high, uh, high king and priest. So we are the people of God in him through repentance and faith. Um, that's the reality of the kingdom that he's talking about. When he says the kingdom of heaven is light, is light. the kingdom of heaven is, is uh, God's people those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, and in Christ we are his people, in God's place right now in this 
in this world with a promise of a new heavens and new earth coming under God's rule, right? The word of Christ. But these parables aren't just about the reality of the kingdom. Clearly, the main point of this parable is the worth of the kingdom. The worth of the kingdom. Think with me just for a minute about that. Jesus makes two comparisons, and we'll be real brief here. Jesus makes two comparisons. In the first parable, verse 44, he compares the kingdom to a treasure. Treasure. Uh, Yeah, and in the second, verses 44 and 45, or excuse me, 45 and 46, he compares it to a pearl of inestimable value. I mean, it doesn't take a scholar to realize that Jesus was saying that the worth and the value of his kingdom is greater than any other earthly good. And that, that's clear not just from what he compares it to, treasure and a pearl, but the immediate responses of those uh, who, who see it. I mean, the person in the field immediately sees the value of this treasure. In fact, he sees it so clearly, he covers it up so that, so that it will still be there when he gets back. He does not want to miss being able to have this precious treasure. And then you have, you have this, in the second parable, this merchant. He's a merchant of fine pearls. This is his business. This is, he knows what he's looking at. And when he sees this, he knows that this one great pearl is, is worth more than all the others he's ever seen. And the fact, the fact that Jesus did not elaborate more on either of these parables illustrates that this this is one of those things that you either see or you don't. This is one of those things that you either believe or you don't. The New Testament is full of stories and full of warnings of people who saw in this world um, all that they desired in life. I mean, you have, uh, you, you have Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard because he, he is so satisfied. He thinks what he has is so valuable. Or you have a man like, like Demas at the end of Paul's life. Demas who had gone to, on, on missionary journeys with Paul, but at the end of his life, Demas deserted and left the faith that he once professed. Why? Because he fell in love with this present world. The, the things of this world were too big in his eyes that he could not see the value of the kingdom right? Um, yeah. It's, it's, the New Testament warns us so much about that. And, uh, and, and we see the worth of the kingdom even more when we think about the cost of the kingdom, um, which we want to think about just, just finally. Because, again, this parable, I, 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 I struggle with knowing how to, how to even elaborate. What Jesus says is just to the point. And it's, you either see it or you don't. What he says about the cost of the kingdom, it's an interesting aspect of, of these parables because on the one hand, the worth of the kingdom is seen in the fact that the, the person who finds the treasure in that first parable and the merchant who finds the pearl in the second one, they don't just immediately see and recognize its value, but they sell all that they owned to get them. But that's the other hand. 
because they sold all that they owned to get them. <laughs> like to have that pearl of great value, to have that treasure. So it's an interesting way to think about the cost of the kingdom because uh, in the parable, it costs you everything you own. It costs you everything you own, but only because it's worth more than you own. And because it's worth more than you own, it doesn't cost you anything. You, you see that? It's an interesting thing. It costs you everything to obtain because it's worth all, more than that, but because it's worth more than that, it doesn't cost you anything. Even though you gave everything you owned. It's like Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has, listen to this phrase, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that does not satisfy. The, the, the bottom line is that this parable, this is Jesus just saying, following him is worth all that we have. He said it in so many different ways other than this. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus said, count the cost to follow him. Because to many, to many people, it does seem too costly. It's because they cannot see the beauty of Christ and the value of his kingdom because they're so absorbed with the value of the earthly things that they have. By the way, there's a great book that will shake you into reality, and that's called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes will say, boy, I had all that stuff, and it's, it's hevel. It's, 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 a, it's a mist and a vapor. Um, Jesus said, count the cost. And to others who have a hard time following, there's, there's also others who, who see, like I said, you see it or you don't. You believe it or you don't. Some people can't see it at all, but in the parable, in the first parable, the hidden treasure, did you notice that Matthew, the one, the one distinction between the two, Matthew straight up says in his first one, he says, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And I just... I just leave you with this. this um, I, I believe that most of you in this room are believers. I, if you're not a believer here, I, I pray that you, you keep coming and keep beholding what, what the Scriptures say about Jesus and the, Lord, the Holy Spirit will give you eyes to see His beauty and the worth of His kingdom and the, and the, and the, the, the crumbling worth of anything that we have here. And I pray, but, but I know most of you are, are believers in this room. And I just want to give you this warning that even if in that moment that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and, and the worth of His kingdom and you, you, you repent of your sins and you run after Jesus, we still have a nagging sinful nature that the worth of the kingdom, if we're not careful, gets smaller and smaller in our eyes as time goes on. If we're not carefully cultivating our own heart and mind on a daily basis, the things of this world just don't grow strangely dim. They grow brighter and brighter. 
and we don't see Jesus as clearly. And so my admonition to you as we close this, this time is you see Jesus holding up the value of the kingdom and so, so ridiculously valuable that it's, it, Jesus compares it to somebody who says, I'm going to sell all that I have for that. That if you, if you see that, right, um, knowing that that will fade in your heart over time if you don't walk closely to Him, just know that you cannot, you cannot see the beauty of what you do not behold. You can't see the beauty of what you don't behold. Our hearts and minds are fickle. They are weak. We will only keep His worth alive in our hearts when we keep his word before our eyes. Uh, let me just leave you this word. Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray.